Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Father, we thank you for sending us the cornerstone. Lord, we praise you. We ask that you would just meet us here in this place. Speak to us right now. We ask that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts to feel, that you would give us hands and feet that are willing to move to do your will. And may we all give you the praise and glory for it. For you are the cornerstone. You are a rock. You are our righteousness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. We are excited to be before you. Uh, We've been journeying through this series called For Our City, examining our call to love and to serve our city. And our lead pastor, James, has done a great job with setting us up over the first three chapters uh, of this story as we've looked at Jonah as this picture of what it means to examine this call and to examine this love. So I I hope to just kind of uh, land the plane for us and, and just kind of wrap things up because, you know, in chapter one, of this story, just for those who may not have been here, we, we, we saw that God told Jonah to go and to, to go to Nineveh to proclaim his truth to these people. Now, Jonah was a prophet. He was a man of God that this is what he did. He proclaimed God's message to the people. So naturally, what did Jonah do? He went the other way. God told him to go to Nineveh. He went to Tarshish. He was on his way there, the, the farthest possible place that he could get from doing what God said. And because of that, as he ran and tried to flee from God, which is kind of crazy when you think about it, how do you try to escape God? But that's what he did and that's what many of us try to do. And so he found himself on a a boat and this boat started to toss and turn because of God pursuing him in this storm. And so the sailors, the other people that were on the boat, all right, they're frantically trying to figure out what's happening. They wake up Jonah and say, yo, Jonah, what are you doing? Like, let's pray to whoever you pray to, to try to figure out how we get this problem solved. And Jonah tells him, yeah, I know what's going on. God is pursuing me. And the only solution is to throw me over the side of the boat because I am the source of the problem. Isn't it interesting how our disobedience can actually cause other people strife as well? That's another message for another day. So, they, so, so the, the sailors reluctantly throw Jonah overboard. The, the sea calms. They're brought to safety, praising God, the, Jonah's God. And so in chapter 2, we see that God miraculously provides a big fish the book says, to swallow Jonah so he doesn't die even though he was just tossed overboard. And in the midst of that fish, we see Jonah cry out to God to give thanks for the fact that he had delivered him and rescued him. 
and, and give them honor. So chapter 3, it starts, uh, the first verse, just like in chapter 1, the, the fish spits Jonah out onto the land, and he says, okay, now go back to Nineveh and proclaim the message that I initially told you to give. Jonah does it. This time he obeys. And incredibly, the Ninevites respond to the message. They, they, the crisis is averted. God's judgment is, 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 is held back because they repented and they fasted and, and they prayed and revival broke out. So you would think, yo, I mean, Jonah must be pretty happy, right? The, the, the very thing that a prophet is supposed to do, which is proclaim God's message so that people would hear that message and then turn to God, actually happened. Unfortunately, though, they didn't live happily ever after, and there isn't a 30-minute sitcom wrap-up to this, this book. And it really leads us to this question, the question that I think that God was asking Jonah and, and, and that he's asking us today. Are you for our city or for ourselves? The first verse of chapter four, I mean, it's, it's, it tells us straight up. So the last verse is the people relented, the calamity was avoided. And so Jonah, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. That's how the chapter starts off. He mad. And it goes on to explain why. It says, he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. He goes on, he said, I knew, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew it, which is why I ran away from you. And at which point we go, am I missing something? What's what's happening? Why are you so upset that God is a God that's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding love? There are some some difficult texts to read about the character and the nature of God in the Old Testament. This ain't one of them. Slow to anger, compassionate. And how did Jonah know that God was like this? He said, I knew you were like this. Well, part of the reason why he knew is because he knew his Bible. And and in Exodus 34, we see that Moses asks God, he wants to see, he wants God to reveal his face. And so God reveals himself in these same exact words. He says, I am the Lord, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And so Jonah knew this theologically. He knew this because he understood the Bible, but he also knew this from personal experience. But we'll get back to that in a second. But for now, okay, so, so he understands that God is gracious and compassionate, but why he mad though? Right? Why is that something to be mad about? Well, because Jonah saw God's grace toward others as a character flaw. Now, when it came to Jonah experiencing the grace of God, you know, rebelling against him, going the exact opposite way that God told him to go, he was, he, that wasn't a problem. He was good with that. Even when it came to his own people, Israel, 
who at this point in time, in this very moment in history, the king, during the time of Jonah's leadership and, and, and ministry, Jeroboam II, it says, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And, and, and yet and still, God is being gracious and patient with them. God, Jonah didn't have a problem with that type of grace and compassion. Because that was us, you know. He's dealing with us, the people of God. He's dealing with us, his chosen ones. But Jonah had a problem when that grace and compassion was extended to them, to these Assyrians, these Ninevites. This, this was an issue. Now, you, you have to get the context here because if you go to 2 Kings Chapter 14, we're not going to go there today, but just if you want a, a historical perspective on how crazy it is that Jonah is mad at God for his compassion, you should check it out there because it says this is now a string of kings of Israel who've all rebelled against God. And the one that is in charge during Jonah's time has been in charge for 41 years. And every single year for those 41 years did what was evil in the sight of God. So much so that, you know what God does? He actually extends the border of Israel because it says that he didn't want them to perish completely off the face of the earth. That was God's response and reaction to seeing this evil king. And so Jonah understood that, but he was like, but that's for us though. But see, the Assyrians, they're different. One, they're Gentiles. They're not the chosen people of God. They're not the ones that you've revealed your promises to. But not only that, and as James mentioned earlier, they also were very violent. Not just very violent. They, they use violence as a form of intimidation to get people to fall in line. So as James would say, not only would they just come and defeat you with their armies, but then they would take all the people who fought in their armies, behead them, and put it as a, a bunch of heads as a human pyramid outside of the city to say, this is what happens when you mess with the Ninevites. And so there's that issue. But then specifically in the context of Israel, Nineveh and Assyria was a problem. Because you see, at this point, Israel is in decline and the biggest power that is emerging at this time is Nineveh. And Jonah knows if God relents and if God holds back his judgment from them, somehow that's going to spell disaster for Israel. And that's exactly what happens 40 years after this very moment that we're in in Jonah chapter 4. 40 years from this moment, the Assyrians come in like Jonah was afraid of and completely demolish Israel. At this point, they're called the 10 tribes, the lost tribes. From the moment the Assyrians come in, they kill them, they deport them, they hold them captive, and, the, and it's gone. It's over with for Israel at that point, for the northern kingdom. They're done. And Jonah is like, yo, I really don't want to go down as the prophet that aided and abetted the people that's going to wipe us off the face of the earth. Not these people. Not, nah, I can't do that. They're my enemies. I, I, I can't. God, don't send me to do this. And the interesting thing is he, he essentially judged God. Jonah judged God because he thought he knew better. 
But we don't do this though, right? We, we, we don't get mad when we see, you know, the wicked flourish and it's like, yo, I'm, you know, I'm a single dude. I'm trying to live right. And then, you know, and I'm trying to respect women and the way that I do things and, and, and have these biblical standards. Meanwhile, I see my boys around the block. They're not doing any of that. And they just picking up all the women. <laughs> we don't do that. We don't get mad about that. We don't get mad where it's like, yo, you know, my husband and I, we're trying to conceive and, you know, trying to give birth and, and you know, and we, and we love God and we've been like, you know, we give and, and you know, and, and all, but, but we're having difficulty with con- conception. Meanwhile, Kim and Kanye are on their second. That don't seem right, God. That, hold on. I, I, that, nah, I'm mad about that. You know, we're like, yo, God, I'm trying to use my gifts to give you glory. I'm trying to, like, honor you with my, like, talents and my abilities, like, my musical abilities and my, my academic. And I, and, but meanwhile, these other people that hate you and they use all of these talents to, to, to blaspheme your name, they're getting ahead. What's up with that? And somehow we look at God's grace and compassion as a character flaw. But God is asking us, like, do you really want me to replay the tape in your life? Like, if I were to just kind of take a a projection, if I was to just, like, set you up on, like, airplay and so that everybody in Times Square could see your thoughts in one day, would you really be so self-righteous as to think that my grace towards somebody else, my compassion towards somebody else is a problem? Yeah, so he judged God, he, and, he, and, and he just says it's not fair. But look in the story, in the context of Jonah, he's the last person that should be complaining. Because if you look, we see that God chose Jonah. God chose Jonah to proclaim his message. But Jonah rejected God. But then that wasn't it. So then God pursued Jonah. He, you know, I'm, I'm pursued him in the boat. He pursued him. But then Jonah hid from God in the boat while everybody else was trying to get rescued. But that wasn't it, though, because, you know, then at Jonah chapter 2, like, God forgave Jonah. He didn't hold it against him, and he actually still chose him again to go out in ministry in chapter 3. But Jonah resented God for his compassion toward everybody else. So then God sought mercy, not just for Jonah, but for the Ninevites. Jonah sought wrath and judgment. God taught Jonah, even after this, in in 4, you'll see he's asking questions. He's trying to pull him out. But does Jonah learn? Well, we'll we'll see as we continue down this text. But but one thing that's important to note here and why is I I had to go through like a little bit of the historical perspective is the fact that, and it's, it's the same issue that happens today, that our political and cultural arrogance can blind us to the call of God. Now, many of us have been very upset this election cycle. Anger has bubbled over, frustration. And there are people that we learn that we even work with that we're like, you have the audacity to vote for him? Nah, we can't even, I can't even mess with you no more. I thought we was cool, but nope, (laughs) nope, that's it. Political identity. But then there's also this cultural arrogance that says, like, yo, my, you know, it's funny, uh, uh, you know, I have this barber, and he's, 
why are you laughing? I have a barber. Like, I do have a beard. Dang, you know? <laughs> but uh, this barber is from Tobago, right? And so I'm, I'm talking to the barber, and he's cutting me, and I'm like, yeah, man, I always would love to go to Trinidad. And he's like, Trinidad. You can't trust them Trinidadians. They're just some disgusting, evil people. They will kill you and slight your throat. I mean, he's just going in on Trinidadians, going in hard. And I'm like, but you can swim to your island, bro, from theirs. <laughs> like, is it that deep? Like, you, like, he was talking as if these were a different class of people, cultural arrogance. Ours is the best. Nobody does it like us. We're the best people on the face of this earth. And, and it's as if that our arrogance, you know what arrogance does? It makes us nose blind. Have y'all, have y'all seen these Febreze commercials where, like, here's the context of nose blind, right? Nose blind is what happens. Like, so you see the little cat on the table in the front. Like, this is the person that, that this is what they think their house smells like. Oh, I just got a little kitty cat that's just kind of climbing on the table. Isn't it cute? But meanwhile, somebody else walks in the crib and they smell like the big cat that's like the couch. And it's like just all they smell is cat. And this is actually a scientific phenomenon when you live in a certain place and a certain smell over time, your brain actually stops, like shuts off the signals of that smell. So you, what, what was before pungent and strong, now that's just normal and you're used to it. And, and, and what arrogance does is it has this tendency to make us nose blind to our own sin funk. Yeah, self-righteousness. It makes us nose blind to our own sin folks. See, our stuff stink. But see, we in our stuff all the time. So we don't mind when the fact that we got a lion problem. You know, it's like we get used to the fact that we just kind of, you know, lust all the time. You know, we just, no, I don't smell nothing. But then somebody else comes up into your life and they're like, whoa, whoa, bro, what's going on? That's kind of strong over there. But meanwhile, while I'm nose blind to my own stench, I'm smelling everybody else's. Everybody else stuff stink. I, mine, I'm good. And meanwhile, God is like, all y'all stink. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> you know, you got that one honest friend that'd be like, yo, you need to go back in that shower, boo. Like, it's, it's, it's bad. Yeah, you need to stink. I have a very honest wife, so I've heard that more than one time. <laughs> but, but this leads to the first point. We can't before our city if we don't love our enemies. You know, there's so many times where as people of faith, what we try to do is we just try to run away from those that disagree, run away from those whose God's mercy hasn't touched yet, as opposed to running toward those people. And in doing so, we're acting just like Jonah. Who are your enemies? Those people who you would rather run away from than run toward. And look at what God responds. Look at how he responds. It says, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? He's trying to draw Jonah out. Like, Jonah, think about this for a second. Why are you mad, bro? But like Jonah, you probably have had some Ninevites in your life who've hurt you. And you would rather see their destruction then God showed them compassion. To serve our city means to serve the very ones who who we may consider our enemies. And unfortunately, the church has done a pretty bad job at this over the years. 
So when the AIDS and HIV epidemic comes out, instead of running toward the LGBTQ community, we go, oh, that's the gay plague. That's God judging y'all. When we see a flood of people from different parts of the world, the Middle East coming into our borders, coming into our shores for fear of their lives, instead of welcoming them and instead of proclaiming the gospel to them, we like, we don't want them to like, keep them away. Don't send them here. And instead of going to those hard and dark places where it's difficult and challenging for us to interact with even our own coworkers, even our own families, we get into our holy huddles, we get into our cliques and just go, ah, I'm good, because I don't want to stumble, you know? Where is your Nineveh? We all have one. Where's that place that we just don't want to go? You know, this... The church hasn't always done a terrible job at this. In fact, uh, a few decades ago, we saw a, a, an example of this that actually rocked the entire world. A group of missionaries decided to go to uh, Ecuador to reach this group of people called the Aka Indians. Now, their name Aka actually meant ferocious. And they earned that name because no one who had ever visited their village, either from another nearby village or from another country, ever survived to tell about it. They killed them all. In fact, not only did they kill outsiders, they killed each other. The, the leading cause of death among the Aka Indians was at the hands of another Aka. 50% of them died because of murdering each other. Another 20% died because foreigners would, you know, their visitors in the different villages, when they would attack them, they would defend themselves. 70% of the population dead violently. So this group of people decided to come in and, and to share the gospel with these people and hopefully see their whole lives change, both in this life and in the one to come. But they, they got smart. They, they, they decided to fly over the land where the orcas were and to drop gifts in a bucket like, you know, down on the ground to just kind of show that they didn't mean them any harm. They did this for several days. And then one day, the orcas actually put gifts in the bucket. And it was like, okay, this is a good sign. So the next day, they landed their plane and they touched down and they interacted with these orca Indians. And everything was cool. And it was like, yo, this is dope. Day two, same thing. And then the third day, something strange happened. They, uh, they saw them coming from afar, but there was a certain look in their eyes of anger. And they had spears in their hands. And as they were coming from afar, they actually, these missionaries were, they had guns with them to protect themselves. But they had committed to each other that they would not shoot at the orcas because they wanted to show them that God's love was more powerful than violence. These men actually were killed, all five of them, as a result of that. The rest of their team, when they heard about this, of course, they mourned and grieved. They had spent years preparing for this very moment. Jim Elliott, one of the ones that was a part of this group, he had just gotten married two years ago, and they just had a child, him and his wife, Elizabeth. Nate was also married, and his wife, Rachel, was a part of the group. So, one day, Rachel and Elizabeth actually see a couple Aka Indian women, you know, that weren't in their village. They were in a, a neighboring city. And they interacted with them and befriended them. And against everybody's 
better judgment and warnings, they actually followed the women back into the village that had just killed their husbands and lived among them for two years. This is a picture of them with her daughter, spending time with these women and, and, and proclaiming the gospel message. Well, the story doesn't end there. So Rachel's son ends up living among the Arca Indians for the rest of his life. And this is a picture of him in the middle. Three of the four men in this picture were part of the team that killed his dad. And this is what Steve Saint, the guy in the middle, had to say. He said, when I was a little boy and my dad flew off and was killed, I thought, how can life ever be good again? But God gave me the man who killed my father to be a father to me and a grandfather to my children. Minkanye is the guy on his left right next to him. They now travel around the world proclaiming the truth of God's love. Now 25% of this village are Christians that walk with Jesus. They have gone from 600 people in their village to over 2,000. And most historians point to their conversion to Christ as the reason that they are not extinct today. That's what it looks like to love your enemies. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Sounds crazy. Sounds like a father sending his son off to an unruly people who were rebellious and rude and violent. And sending this son and then his son being tortured by these very people. And while he's getting tortured by him, he's looking up to the heavens saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That is the gospel. That is the message. And God in this story is not just pursuing the rebellious Ninevites, but the proud and rebellious Jonah as well. But Jonah still isn't trying to hear it. So, you know, we last left off in the story where God asked him this question, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah just ignores the question. He don't even answer. It says that Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So what Jonah does is he's like, well, man, these, these, these wicked people, they, you know, they, they probably, you know, they, they repented for like a day, but I'm going to give them some time. They're going to start killing each other again. Everything's going back to normal. God's going to judge them. I'm going to be able to see it. It's going to be dope. Like, let me just, you know, just lay back chilling the cut and just watch the fireworks. So this is what he decides to do. But look at what happens next. It says, now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. This was still the desert in high heat. And we know, yo, you ever notice how like, you ever like walk on the side of the street that has the shade as opposed to the sunlight and it feel like it's like 20 degrees cooler? So yeah, so you know, we experienced that. So Jonah's sitting out in the hot sun for hours and God, while this dude is not even responding to his question, still gives, is gracious to him and gives him shade and it says Jonah was happy, exceedingly glad. But 
when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Hmm. He was still like, look, I, I, I'm mad at this plan. So, so this is, what, look what God's response is. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He's still drawing him in. He's still pursuing him. He's still saying, Jonah, what, why are you mad, bro? <laughs> Look at Jonah's response. Yeah, God continues on. He says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm right to be mad. I got a reason to be mad. Look at what, I, <laughs> I'm ready to die over this, God. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and much more cattle. So, so he, he basically says, look, Jonah, you're, you're upset. Your, your, your emotions have run wild over a plant that existed just in 24 hours. So this is the first time when you look at it that this is the first emotional response we get out of Jonah the whole time. And it's because he's uncomfortable. He's uncomfortable. That's what he's concerned about. And so that leads to the second point. We can't be for our city if we demand our own comfort. And this is part of the problem. You see... Jonah was more content to not have that reputation as the guy that helped the wicked Assyrians stay alive as a people to ultimately destroy. He didn't want to have a bad rep. He didn't want to have to go out of his way to go to these people. He didn't want to have to deal with their rejection. And he really didn't want to have to deal with this hot sun that was beating down on him. And so that's all of where his focus is. But if we're going to be for our city, if we're going to reach out, it means going outside of our comfort zones. It means being inconvenienced by other people. Are you for your city or for your comfort? You see, because it's impossible to seek comfort and the kingdom at the same time. You got to make a choice which one you're going after. Because if you're going to go after comfort, then that means that you've made yourself your God. And it's like, look, I'm just trying to chill. I'm just trying to work, go home, put my feet up. I'm not trying to be about community. That city group is too far. I'm tired. I ain't trying to talk to people, get outside of my car. I'm an introvert. If you're trying to be about your own comfort, I'm not going to have a conversation with somebody at my job and they know I'm a believer and what that's going to make things weird. I'm just going to chill. But if you're about the kingdom, though, see, because the kingdom in, in his agenda means going outside of your comfort zones. It means going to the places to have those conversations. It means putting your whole life in a position where you're ready to serve. Some of you guys are traveling over, you know, from New Jersey to get here, from Mount Vernon to get here. That's not about comfort or convenience. That's about the kingdom. And, you know, it. It's never easy, but that's what makes it glorious. 
You know, the first time, uh, one of the first times I ever shared my faith, uh, we were at this conference and, you know, it was like day of outreach, right? So they sent all of us out. I wasn't trying to be like particularly special. I, matter of fact, I thought about hiding in the hotel room because I didn't want to go. And they paired us up, experienced to inexperienced. And so here I am. I'm like, yo, I'm inexperienced. Yes, all day. That's me. Give me somebody that I can talk that knows what to say. So they pair me up with this youth pastor, right? So we get all fill up into these uh, school buses, and we drive into this hood in Atlanta. And, you know, I already got my plan mapped out, my strategy. You know, we're going to go up to a house, some nice little old lady who already knows Jesus is going to let us in, give us some cookies. We're going to chill because it was cold outside. It's going to be good. But the experienced guy, he's like, um, yo, how about we talk to this dude on the corner? I'm like, no, dude on the corner. No, that doesn't ever end well. Like, I don't want, but he was the leader, so we followed along. So we go up to this guy on the corner, and it's like, you know, we tell him who we are and what we're doing and, you know, trying to share people, you know, about the love of God. He's like, yo, I'm a drug dealer. I pay off the cops to look the other way. What you trying to tell me on my block? I was like, nothing, Mr. Drug Dealer. We're going to go back to the bus and uh, just, you know, you have a good day. Like, <laughs> thinking to myself, I knew to see this is why I don't do stuff like this. You just don't know who you're talking to. I never had, still to this point in my life, I've never ever had somebody to admit to me that they sold drugs and paid off the police. That, that was a brand new experience. So I'm ready to roll. Like, I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm shocked. And this youth pastor that I was with, the experienced guy, he just kept talking to the guy. Five minutes later, I'm like, okay, we're still alive. Ten minutes later, this dude is like nodding his head. Fifteen minutes later, he was praying to receive Christ while he was weeping and repenting of his lifestyle on that corner. That would not have happened if we would have just stayed in our nice little comfortable Christian huddle in the hotel. That only happens when we go out and seek the kingdom. Well, let's make this plain for us today, right? Because we saw how many people were in Nineveh. You realize there are 8.4 million people in New York City. This is definitely by the same standards that uh, Nineveh would be considered a great city. Some would even say the great city in the world. In the metro area, there's 22.6 million people. And you want to guess how many are Bible-believing Christians, 4%. 4% self-identify as Bible-believing Christians. Out of a crowd of 100, only four. And God is calling people and asking, will you go? Will you share? Does this bother you? Or are you too comfortable? Are you too just pressed with your own life that that just doesn't even matter to you? Because if it matters and their eternal destiny matters, then wouldn't we do something about it? Wouldn't we go? And so God asked Jonah this question. He said, look, should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not have sent someone to them? But the interesting thing is this is not the end of Jonah's story because it leaves in kind of an unsatisfactory way for me. But 700 years later, the story picks back up again when Jesus is being challenged in the book of Matthew, chapter 12. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, 
And check out what Jesus says. <laughs> he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. <laughs> something greater than Jonah is here. And his name is Jesus. And he's here to forgive sin. He's here to bind up the brokenhearted. He's here to heal those who are bound by disease and by injustice, those who are victims of violence, discouragement, de depression. This is who it is. He says, I'm greater than Jonah, and this is my purpose. You see, Jonah was good and all, but it was just a preview. The things in the Old Testament, those were just coming attractions of what was to come. Maybe you went too fast and you didn't see it, but peep the parallels. Jonah was sent on a mission to offer God's mercy to those who didn't deserve it. Jesus was too. Jonah, and when he was in the midst of that boat, the only solution that there was to save the sailors' lives was to give his life as a ransom to them. Does that sound familiar? Just as Jonah descended in the belly of the fish for three days, Jesus descended in the depths of the earth. And just as Jonah rose back up again, so did Jesus, but him with all power in his hand. This is what this story is about. Just as the Ninevites repented and believed the gospel, so did all of us who call ourselves Christians, who call Jesus their Lord and their Savior, have also experienced this new life. He is for our city. He is here to restore, and that's the good news. Amen. That people don't have to stay the way that they were. But see, if you realize that Jesus is, is, is really the ultimate and true Jonah, then that kind of changes the way we look at the whole story. Because in reality, we're not Jonah in the story, we're Nineveh. We're the ones who are rebellious and who are wicked and who are sinful and who don't deserve God's grace and compassion. But look at what God does. He pursues us anyway. And the amazing thing that happens is you see in, John, in Jonah chapter 3, the Ninevites actually preaching to themselves. It says the king proclaimed, look, guys, we got to repent. God may turn away. It says he published. These are gospel words to proclaim the gospel and the good news. And that's the third point. We can't be for our city if we don't proclaim and demonstrate the gospel. Amen. This is the antidote. It's not another government program. It's not another rally and march. And I'm not dissing those things and saying they're bad. But ultimately, people need Jesus. And we're crazy enough to believe that Jesus can change your life. And if you experience him and start walking with him, everything flips upside down. Amen. I'm crazy enough to believe that. Because I saw it on the corner in Atlanta. And then I see it every morning when I look in the mirror. Do you believe that Jesus can change lives? Yes. Something greater than Jonah is here. And in the same way we look at Jonah and we go, yeah, how, how could he not go 
and proclaim this message. It's the same way that we should look at ourselves. When we, for our own sense of insecurities and inconveniences, refuse to proclaim this same message that saved our lives. If it's true that Jesus is the cornerstone as we sing, then ought we to allow other people to experience that as well? Well, there are three things, three ways I want to just commend us to for how we can be for our city. The first is to pray for our city. To pray for our city. And not just in general terms and words, but I want specifically for people. Uh, Pastor James mentioned last week about having a list of people, those hard to reach, those people that are like the Ninevites. It's like, yo, that person ain't never going to get saved. That person's never going to walk with Jesus. Somebody said that about us. <laughs> so, but praise God, somebody else didn't say that, and they sought to pursue us anyway. So I challenge you to just make a list of 10 people that you can pray for every day. Secondly, prepare for our city. And what I mean by prepare, do you know what to say? <laughs> right? It's simple. How do I know what to say? Like, if someone came up to you right now and said, hey, I heard you were a Christian, and I don't know what much about that is, but, like, I'm, I'm you know, I'm looking for some direction in my life. How, how can you help me? Would you even know what to say? It's important to prepare. The first thing is to know your story. See, is there one thing that is the greatest apologetic tool, the greatest defense of the faith that exists in his life is what God done, did in your life? It's irrefutable because you were there and you experienced it. And so there's some other ways that we can train and be equipped and be ready as well, but to know your story, know how to share the gospel. And then lastly, proclaim for our city. Proclaim him. We actually have to commit to communicate this good news to those who need it. Now, it's funny. Someone said, preach the gospel, use words when necessary. And what that person was saying is that we proclaim the gospel. The proclaim means to herald. And it was this picture where the messenger actually embodied the message that they were communicating. So in other words, we can't just talk about it. We got to also walk about it. We got to practice what we preach in front of other people. And that is part of what it means to proclaim the gospel. But it does involve some words, too. We do have to open our mouths and say something. So I just want to show you, um, there's this interesting video uh, that began circulating a few years ago of the, uh, Ill the illusionist Penn & Teller. They do the show in Las Vegas where they do uh, magic. And somebody came to uh, Penn's and Teller's show and uh, shared with him. And, and he talked and reflected about that experience um, as someone who's an atheist. Check that out. And ask a very probing question. How much do I have to hate somebody to not push them outside of the way of impending danger? Jonah saw that Nineveh was in the midst of a big truck coming their way. Something much worse than the truck, God's wrath and judgment. And God pursued him so that he could pursue them. 
I mean, when you think about it, the way that God works is he didn't, uh, the Ninevites didn't hear the message until Jonah was there, present among them. He didn't skywrite it in the sky. And that's the same way that he works today. For some reason in his economy, he uses us, he uses people to proclaim his message. Now, are there ways in that we've done this wrong? And you can, you know, yeah, absolutely. And I think some of the things that Penn said, he was polite, he was honest. And yeah, are there things you have to be careful about and be thoughtful about at the job and at home? Absolutely. But how many times do we use these things as excuses to not say anything versus opportunities, just asking God, God, would you use me? Would you use me to proclaim your message to the very people that might ridicule me to my face? Or maybe they have. Could you help me to spin the conversation toward these spiritual things? God, it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be inconvenient. Would you use me? Help me to proclaim this message. Help me to give a reason for why what I believe. We just sang this song, when he shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. There's only one way that you can know that you're faultless to stand before the throne, and that is by being clothed in Christ. You might be here today and you're like, yeah, I'm Jonah. I need to ask God for boldness and and compassion to share with those who need to hear the message. But you might be here and you're like, oh, I'm Nineveh. I don't have a relationship with this God. I've never decided to follow Christ as my Savior and Lord. Well, wherever you are, you're in the right place. So we're in the moment here, we're going to pray and and the band, the rest of the worship team, you guys can come up. And uh, I just want you to allow God's Spirit to speak to you. Because Christ is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. As Christians, we don't believe that we're better than anybody else, but we're forgiven because of what Christ did for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the cornerstone who is Christ. Thank you that you have allowed us to hear this message of reconciliation, that you have given us a message of reconciliation, where it says that you make your appeal through us to man to be reconciled to God. Lord, help us not keep our mouths shut. Help us not keep our mouths closed. Help us to be bold in our faith. Help us to have wisdom to share. 
Lord, would you give us opportunities this week, even with the people that we've thought about, that you've put on our minds and our hearts. And Lord, if there's someone here today that you're speaking to right now, they, they, they identify with Nineveh and they just thought they were too far gone. They've done too many things to warrant your grace and your mercy. Would you show them right now through this word that you are willing as far as the east is from the west to remove their sin from your presence. That you have paid their way and that they can be clothed in your righteousness alone. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.